if you can't line it up on your tombstone and it's, it's just some something you picked up along the way. So everything that I'm doing lines up with my tombstone. Because when it's all said and done, that stone is gonna say who you were. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15 year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Andre Norman into the conversation. Andre is the reason to believe in second chances. Nearly two decades ago, he was not only serving a 100-year sentence in prison, he was also running all the gang activity within it. After an epiphany in solitary confinement and a lot of hard work, he was released, GED in hand, having served his 14 years. He then decided to start a transformational program of his own, the Academy of Hope, which is designed to reduce institutional violence in prisons. On a wider mission of impact, Andre now teaches individuals and corporations how to turn any situation around. His solution-based recovery efforts have impacted regions, including Honduras, Bahamas, Sweden, Guatemala, Liberia, and Trinidad. He has also lectured on multiple TEDx stages, as well as London Business School and Harvard University. From the prison yard to the Harvard yard, buckle up and let's welcome Andre Norman to the Playmakers podcast. Andre, welcome to Playmakers. How we doing? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Happy to be here. Of course, man. We're fired up to have you. And look, even after me reading your bio, introducing many of our Playmakers into your backstory, it's something that we just, we got to hear it direct from the source. So if I was to go back to yester-yesteryear, talk to us about childhood, those earliest formative years, and how some of those earlier pieces have molded you? Well, my mom met a high school sweetheart. She had two kids. Her husband went to jail for Robin Banks. She met my dad, local drug dealer, had four more kids. Mom, dad, six kids, everything's great, except my dad had a habit of beating my mom. So we go through years of domestic violence. I finally get old enough to go to school. School's a ph- phenomenal place. Tons of kids to play with. Running to school every day is great. Coming home from school, kids stop throwing rocks at our bus and calling us names because it's the busing crisis of Boston. White kids and white, white kids and black kids are going to school together because a federal judge said so. And we get through that. Then finally one day, you come home from school in the first grade, and dad's gone. Mom had enough. She got finally got him out the house. Single mom, six kids. You know how that goes. We bounce around, go to a new school. We find out Andre can't read, stick him in a dummy class for special needs kids. A teacher took interest in me and taught me my learning style in the third grade, even though I was in a dummy class. Progressed to middle school, we find out when I find out that we're poor. I don't know I'm poor at the middle school because that's when the other kids told me I was poor. (laughs) Sixth graders are the most evil people on the planet and they let me know I was poor and a bunch of other things. So I started hanging out with friends in the park to hustle after school, selling weed, so we can make enough money to buy socks and pants and cookies and stuff before school. So now I'm half time hustling, started playing the trumpet and band. By the time I get to high school, I'm a full fledged band guy, trumpeteer. 
And my friends convinced me playing the trumpet was stupid. So in high school, I got rid of the trumpet. I'm full-time in the street. And that takes you no place but to prison. So I woke up one day in court. They started reading off sentences, seven to 10, nine to 10, nine to 10, 10, 10, 15 and 20, 15 and 20, and five. Put me in a van at 18, drove me to the prison and they dropped me off. And it was like one of the scariest days of my life. Um, I joined a gang, I followed the lead and I go with what is, and I'm six years into the sentence and I realized something. I became the king of nowhere. I'm sitting in solitary confinement in a cell 24 hours a day by myself. And I think that I'm winning because I told myself that somehow this is a game I wanted to play. And this prison gang thing was something remarkable and it was grandiose and it was all stupid. And I said, okay, I don't want to be here anymore. And I decided I wanted to do something different. First thing I said is I want to be free. And I realized everybody went free, white, black, and Spanish all came back. Free is the parking lot. That's all free was, getting to the parking lot. And when people get to the parking lot, they have no plan for part two. They just get to the parking lot, and when they have no plan, what are you going to do now? I don't know. So they go do what they know, which brings them back to prison. So I said, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to go to the parking lot. I want to go to success and never come back here. So I said, I'll go home, go to college, get a degree, be successful, never come back here. So I picked a school called Harvard University. And I told my team, I got my guys together. I said, listen, I figured it out. Going home, going to Harvard, going to be successful. Everybody said it wasn't possible. Everybody told me no and why. And when they were telling me why I couldn't go, I'm black, I'm a gang member, I'm in solitary, I'm a psychopath. All I heard was my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. So I said, I'm not listening for this twice. But had I told those same guys, let's go attack a group of people because I was mad at them, they would have gone. Let's go attack the guards, they'd have gone. Let's go home and be successful, they all said no. The conditioning that they had been subject to, and myself as well, had them believing that they were better off sitting in jail. So I wrote my list of what I wanted to do and what was in my way. Then I looked in the mirror and said, what's inside of Andre to stopping this from happening? Then I started working. I went back to school, got my GED, went to mental health because I had mental health problems. I went to anger management, anger management problems. I started going to the law library and teaching myself the law and I overturned my case. I, started, I did eight years of programming, eight years of therapy, eight years of study to get my life on track. And then when I came home after 14 years, I had a GD in a plant and wasn't to sit in the parking lot. It was to go to Harvard. So I want to double click on a number of things that you just said. So we'll go back to the beginning. But now that you gave us really that beautiful fast pass through the journey. And, and of course, we're going to hang out for a while in terms of the post prison chapters and all of the, the service and the impact that you've been driving. But go back to those childhood years, because I've heard you in other conversations talk about how you you had a certain lens. There were certain ways that you viewed the world based on those earliest years, because this all connects, right? So what was it? You mentioned uh, about your pops, you mentioned about other things. So how are you viewing the world different than maybe had you had a different type of upbringing? I learned three lessons as a young child. One, it's okay to hit people because if my mother can be hit, anybody can be hit. Two, I'm gonna protect myself because when those kids threw rocks and names at me, nobody came to help me. And three, I can quit anytime I want. If my dad can walk out on me, I can walk out on you. And as an eight-year-old kid, this is a lens I saw the world through. 
So everything came up to that. I'd be in football practice. If I didn't like it, I quit. If I was taking a test, if it was too hard, I quit. They wanted me to do leadership. If I didn't like it, I quit. I mean, I never could find my way to get through something. I would always quit. And it wasn't until I was in prison and in therapy, intense therapy, that my counselor finally connected that to me. Andre, you're a quitter. I'm like, get out of here. I'm go hard. I'm tough. Look at me. <laughs> and she said, no. And she helped me draw the line between my father walking out and me accepting quitting as a possibility and it's okay. Once we fix that quitting gene, then my goals of going to Harvard, my goals of going to the moon all became possible because I was going to go or die trying. Hmm. So if somebody right now is listening and let's say, because you're known as the ambassador of hope. So what if somebody listening feels hopeless? Like that's their mind state as they listen to this. What are those tactical things that you would recommend on how to go from hopeless to having hope? Easy, call me. I would say call me. And when I say call me, the first thing that they're gonna say is, he's not gonna wanna talk to me and he's not gonna take my call. He's too this and he's too busy. And when you hear yourself saying that, that's even more the reason you need to call me. I'm saying out my mouth, call me and I will help you walk through this process. You start defeating yourself and beating yourself down with all the reasons why I won't take your call. At no juncture am I saying I won't take your call. So they'll listen to factual verbiage and create their own narrative of why they should stay stuck. And that's when you know you have a problem. I am saying Call me and I will help you walk through. Your brain's coming up with 20,000 reasons why that won't happen, which is all the reasons. When you hear that scenario play out, he said, call me. He don't want to hear from me. Oh, he doesn't understand me. Or he's black or he's from the East Coast. So he's all the reasons you're given are your own mind. I'm saying something really basic. If you're depressed, if you're suicidal, if you're stuck in a rut, if you can't find your way, you're clueless, you need helpful, you need guidance, just call. Now, you're going to hear all the tapes in your head of the conditioning that's trying to hold you in the space that you're in. When I said to my friends in prison, let's go home and go to Harvard, their tapes kicked in. We can't do that. You can't do that. We're black. We're poor. We're criminal. All the reasonings that nobody else, we create our own prison. And there's so many people in society living in their own prison and there's no God, there's no master, there's nobody at the gate stopping you. You're stopping yourself. We fast forward a bit. You talked about childhood and then you glossed over something that I think we can hang out with for a couple of minutes here, because I think if I'm listening to this, I'm getting that sense of inspiration and hope. So I follow you there. Now, you mentioned the trumpet. I believe in knowing your story the way that I do, and I've heard you in multiple other talks, is I believe there was a very significant meaning in that decision, that fork in the road that you made. And I know a teacher was involved. So on the outside, it looks like there could have been a musical gift. And perhaps a trumpet is how you expressed it. And you had to make a call. You had to make a call. And so talk to us about that moment in time, the key players in that, because I'm thinking if I'm a playmaker, maybe there's a gift that I'm still expressing, or maybe there's a gift that at one point I could have gone there and I didn't. So talk to us. 
in the sixth grade, back when I was in school, everybody was in a band. So the, Miss Ellis gave me a trumpet. She said, hey, this is for you. You're in the trumpet. You're in the band. And I played all through middle school. And I got really good at it. When it came time to go to high school, Miss Ellis came to me. And she said, you can't go to the district high school. I said, why not? She said, you have a gift and you have to go where your gift takes you. I said, well, my friends are going to the district high school. She said, no, what about your friends? Follow your gift. And she made me go to a magnet school that had a great music program. So when I get there, I'm already in the streets half the time. I'm in trouble half the time, but I still always went to band. Going to high school as a freshman, I go to the band room. It's a room full of nerds. <laughs> and these nerds looked at me like, what are you doing here? And But I had my trumpet. And I pulled my trumpet out and I played. They thumbed up. I'm in the band. And every day I would get to school and go to the band. It was the greatest part of the day. In the afternoon, I hang out with the cool guys and I get in trouble. Then they finally said to me, Andre, what is a box? It's stupid. And they talk me like, you got to get rid of that thing or get rid of us. And so I got rid of my trumpet. And I tell people, growing up poor is horrible, but people have done it and made it. Growing up without a dad is some of the worst things you could ever happen, but people have done it and made it. Trying to grow up without a dream is impossible. And the day I gave up my trumpet, I gave up my dream. So super direct question here. If you stay with that trumpet, you think you end up in prison? No. I probably go to college and I'll be in a band and I'd have had a whole different life. But you make the decision you made and I know you own it. And then you end up in prison. It's my decision. But I'm a 14-year-old making a decision without guidance or support. Had I gone home to my mom and dad and said, hey, my friends want me to give up my trumpet, I would hope they would say, no, you're going to play the trumpet. My son has come home many times. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, you're going to do it. And he didn't, his school takes a trip to China. He didn't want to go because his best friends were going. So I don't care about your best friends. You're going. And because that's what parents do. They make decisions for their kids that they can't make on their own. We're looking beyond right now. And he's going to miss two weeks with his buddies. They'll be there when you get back. And I've sent him on many trips away from home. And do things because I, as dad, believe is good for. But if dad's not there, he's making a decision. And the decision he would have made is he'd have never gone to China. He'd have stayed with his friends. So you just talked about even you as a dad right there. You, you talked about an example of what many would call a form of leadership. And you and I both know, Andre, because I know you pride yourself on being in the leadership development space. And we all know. There's really good leaders, there's great leaders, and then there's another side. So if I was to go into those earlier years of prison, because again, I've heard you tell some of these stories and I think they're so fascinating. A lot of people would define leadership as influence. And so if you were to just take that definition as fact for sake of this question, then I would say you experienced a lot of leadership in those earliest years, man, because I've heard you talk about the game, the game that exists in the way that prisons are structured and the business game and the drug game. So give us a give us a backstage pass of what that is all structured like and what you learned about leadership for better or worse in those early prison years. One of my earliest mentors slash leaders who taught me leadership was a guy named Dominic Williams. He was on a life sentence. He was a boss of our game. And. He ran everything with an iron fist. He was like, we were the top gang in the city or the prison system, nothing to do with me, but because of him. So we're the number one gang in the state and I'm on his team, whatever you want to call it. And in the unit one time, I got in an argument with a guy and 
we done the argument. So after lunch, we're going to go to the library and we're going to fight because the library is in the basement. And that's where everybody goes to fight. So I go to lunch and I tell Dominic, hey, after lunch, I got a beef with this guy in the library and just want to let you know. He says, cool. He said, well, can you beat him? I said, well, dude, I got my knife. I got the plug. I'm going to hit him with the pipe. And I'm going to stab him a couple times. He said, no, no, can you beat him? I said, I got this move that you, st- man, remember, you see me on the, I got all this stuff. I'm running my mouth. He finally said, shut up and answer the question. Can you beat him? And the guy was like probably twice my size and like a lot bigger. I said, no. And he said, hey, Johnny, you fight for him. Steve, you got his back. Dre, you watch the door. I made a lie. What are you talking about? I'm trying to prove myself. I need this fight to prove to you how tough I am. He looked at me and said, Dre, we don't take losses. This team doesn't take losses and this ain't about you. So shut up and play your position and stay online because we don't take losses. You want to be emotional? Join another team. We're about the business of winning. And I went to the, I went to the library and I watched somebody fight for me. And that was like a lesson of my emotionalism was going to, because if I go get beat up, then our team got beat up. Then that's a black eye on the whole gang. And it's, but being emotional and trying to prove myself, I was gonna put the entire gang at risk for reputation. And so many people are trying to prove themselves that you put yourself at risk. And going through the system is called get it right or die. Get it right or die. You, you got white guys, black guys, Spanish guys, you got Asian guys, you got the gods, you got all kinds of stuff happening. Get it right or die. The first time you misread a spreadsheet, you die. The first time you misread somebody who's going to sell your team out, you die. The first time you miscalculate, you die. There's not a lot to that. There's not a lot to that. So either you get it right or somebody's going to stuff a knife in your throat. That's it. So that gives you real incentive to be focused and detailed. And that's what I was. Because I'm watching people die who don't get it right. And I had to learn early on that every decision is a life or death decision in here. Every decision is a go to the shower by yourself. You might get murdered in there. You go out to the I went to the library. I went to the movies one time by myself and almost got murdered. People are always looking. You have guys looking every day, looking for the opportunity to exploit. And they're looking for the time that you're not paying attention. I, oh, I can go to movies by myself. I'm the boss. What's going to happen to me? Well, I have 15 guys try to rush and kill me. It's like, oh, Andre thinks we're not paying attention. Imagine if in your company, we have entrepreneurs on. Imagine if your company, if the mailman or the guy who works in the mailroom could just slice your throat and become the CEO, how long would you be alive? <laughs> if, if the guy is in the mailroom if he can catch you coming out of the bathroom and not paying attention, stab you a quick five, six times, and they make him the CEO and give him control of the business. How long would you be how long would you be alive if your employees could kill you and take your spot? Your management style would drastically change. Right now, most people leverage the ability that I control your check. I control your income is different than I can I have can have respect of you and influence over you. Influence and control is two different things. I control your check, isn't I influence you. So in my business, in my space, you have to connect to the person because that any one of the people on your team, they slice your throat, they get to take your job. So I wonder how many CEOs believe they'd last a week if that was true in their company. 
All right, we're going to come back there because we do have a massive audience that are in not only positional leadership, but more importantly, they're leaders in life. So, so let's put a pin in that thought and we're going to come back here, going back into prison, if we could for a second. Uh, if I was to ask you, so give us, um, I know you talked earlier about the sentences in total, what were, uh, what were the counts? What were the charges that you had against you? And, and how many years did that all stack up to? Well, it added up to a hundred years. And it went to 105 once I it added up to 95 and I picked up two attempted murders in prison. So I went up to 105 years was the total time. I was supposed to do about 28. That's what I was supposed to do because some of it ran together, some of it didn't. So I should have did about 28 years. But what happened is when I made up my mind, well, my crimes, armed robbery, armed home invasion, armed carjacking, armed assault with a shotgun, attempted murder. Those are my charges. Yeah. So Andre, if I'm, I mean, obviously we're having this conversation because you got out. You're no longer in there. And I know as a part of reading your story, there's an epiphany that happened along the way. So like the majority of people, brother, you know better than me, but I know it's going to be in the 90s. It's not 100 percent because there are some exceptions, but 90 plus percent of folks, once they're in, stay in. Like you said, maybe they get to the parking lot and they'll boomerang their way back in. But what triggered for you? What was that epiphany? Like, why are you not still in there? What's different about you versus the rest of the pack? I was two things. One, almost everybody in prison has an epiphany. It happens. They have the epiphany. And the thing is, they're in a circumstance that they don't control their lives. So if you're part of a gang and you're just a guy in a prison and you have this great epiphany to do this thing, but you don't have the leverage to make it happen, the epiphany is a waste of time. When I had my epiphany, I was in solitary confinement. So it gave me another six months to start walking the talk and start formulating a plan and start exercising the plan. So by the time I got back to general population, I was six months into my plan. Had I been in general population and I had my epiphany, Six o'clock at night, boom. I come out my cell the next day. My gang is ready to go do the day-to-day business. We get up every day. We brush our teeth. We take a shower. We, we drink some coffee. We get in the car. We get in the train. We go to work. We say hi to somebody in the elevator on the way up. We go to our cubicle. We sit there. We go to lunch. We drift over by the water cooler like 2.30 to waste time. Four o'clock comes. We start winding down. Five o'clock, we leave the thing. We hope the, the aggravating person doesn't get on the elevator with us. We get back downstairs, we get our car, we complain about parking, we complain about traffic, we go home, we eat dinner, and we go to sleep and do it again. It's that same cycle. And when you have your epiphany, now, it's great to have epiphany when you're away at home, away from home. You know what most people have their epiphanies in the free world? At a funeral. I call it funeral thinking. You go to a funeral and you're standing there, you're looking at somebody in a casket, and you start thinking of all the things that you should be doing with your life. All the people you should make up with. All the, you sit there at this funeral and your brain is just processing everything you should do right. Then you walk out of the funeral and most people do nothing. You go to the funeral, another funeral, you have all the thoughts that what you should do. And then you go away from the funeral, you do nothing. It's the same thing with guys in prison. We wake up, we know exactly what we should do. We go right back to what we were doing. So having that six month in solitary what enabled me to get a running head start and to form muscle memory in the space of what I was doing. 
Because so many of us have muscle memory. We get up, we go to brush our teeth, take a shower, good book, every day, every day, every day. So somebody dies, you go to a funeral, you're standing there, you're thinking about all the things that you should do, all the people that you should call, all the things you should attend for, or and then tomorrow morning, it's 8 o'clock and you run away to work again. The thing that differentiated for me was I was in solitary confinement by myself for six months in a cell. And that six months helped me create new muscle memory. That I'm going to get up and I'm going to study. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read. I'm going to get up I'm going to be positive. I'm going to get up I'm going to do affirmations. I'm going to get up I'm going to press myself. I'm going to get up I'm going to challenge myself. I'm looking for accountability. Had I been in general population, the next day, I went right back to my muscle memory of being the gang boss. And what I'm hearing from you as well is how critical environment is. Like you said, solitary confinement versus not being having a certain tribe around you as a playmaker in life versus a different tribe and how that can impact you for better or worse. So these are all of the insights that I'm gathering right out of this. All right. So. So you get out. And then what? Um, for most people, freedom is a parking lot. So they get to the parking lot like, what do I do now? I don't know. I just want to be free. Well, you're in the parking lot. You're free. So they go back to what they were doing before. Those last eight years, I worked towards the goal of going to Harvard and being successful. So when I got out, I had a plan. I started working my plan. I started executing my plan. And the first thing I did was called give back. I went right back to the juvenile center where I came out of. And I started teaching these kids how not to go to jail. I started with black boys because that's where I felt comfortable. Then they challenged me to work with the girls. So I went to talk to the girls. And they challenged me to work with white kids. I'm like, I don't know about white kids. I started working with white kids. I started working with Spanish kids. And then I got to the point where I said, I just work with kids. I used to work with exclusively black boys. That's what I felt comfortable with. That's where I was at. I was great at it. Now, even 20, 15 years ago, I got to the point where I just work with people. And I train people. Because I meet somebody coming, I'm going to go home, help the community, make it better. I said, who you work with? Little black boys. Why? Because that's what I know. Do you want to know more? Do you want to expand beyond that? But nobody's ever challenged them to expand beyond that. They need somebody who's already done it. I tell them, there's kids and people who just need your help. And you never know how one connects to the other. So, Andre, if, if there's somebody listening in that wants to help, but maybe doesn't have a clear vision of where to put their energies toward. So who do they want to serve? They just have this giving bone in their body, but maybe they don't know where to put it. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I'm just trying to create some tactical things. I know you and I, what we share in common is we connect pain to purpose, right? I think you can find a lot of purpose in leaning in instead of running away from your pain. Of course, you got to heal it. And then you got to lean into it. So is that a potential strategy of like trying to identify pain or how would you explain maybe where folks can start to give back if maybe they don't have a clear vision of that? Okay, there's two ways to give back. There's multiple ways. I'm going to give you two. You as an individual who woke up and says, I want to make a difference in the world. I just want to make a difference. I don't know what it is, but I want to make a difference. I'm not going to, we're going to skip the, the, the route of just writing a check to global funds or whatever fund it is out. Get that. You want to make a difference. So I ask you, let's get a checklist. What do you love? Do you love education? Do you love sports? Do you love science? Do you love music? Do you love city? Do you love farms? Do you love fishing? 
What do you love? Because we need to base this thing that you do around what you love. Now, some of them say, well, I love fishing. Now, we're going to base this thing around your fishing. You'd be like, well, what about the kids who are dying in the inner cities? What about the kids who are dying in Ukraine? What about the people who are stuck under a bridge? Everybody's not for everything. We need to build something that's going to sustain, not just fill a gap, because this is a real problem. So let's find something you love. Wrap your giving in that space, whether it's taking disadvantaged kids or taking advantage kids or making exposure, whatever the thing is, we, let's wrap it around something that you love. All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me for now. Let's get back to the show. And we always share this on Playmakers because the big question is, and for me, it's too big of a question, which is, what is my purpose? And I, and I think if that's where you start, it can feel a little overwhelming. So we bring it down to the lowest common denominator. It's A, what are you curious about? Then B, within that curiosity, there's some passion in there. And that's where you were bringing us as well, Andres. What do you love? What's that passion? Because now I know you're interested in it. That's why you were curious. Now I see, oh, here's a common thread of passion. And if I keep leaning into it and I keep putting in the reps, then eventually there may be a sense of purpose that emerges from that. And that's where we start to uh, get into the bigger play here. So for you, from those earliest days, so you're out, you're starting to do some speaking work. And just like even I could reflect back on my career, nobody is packing the arena or the stadium day one. Okay. So I know what your resume says now. I used to go to high school. They were like, big I came home, prison, parole office, youth center. 90 minutes after I got out of prison, I did my first talk to 35 kids in the detention center. Went back to my old high school, went to my mom's church, went to the YMCA I used to go to, went to the boys club and then started volunteering in the community. And it just kept growing. And people love to see people trying, not talking about it. So I don't hang out in barbershops. I hang out at rec centers. <laughs> and I go, I just kept doing the work. And I kept getting recognized. And the more you give, the more they'll be giving to you. And I, most, if not every connection I have right now is based on me giving without expectation of receiving. So John O'Leary, uh, my entire St. Louis family, um, Joe Polish with Genius Network, Roland Fraser with, um, with War Room, Vern Harnish and John Ratliff with Scaling Up. I can go down the list from London Business School to Harvard. Every place I am, it's because I gave first. Well, Andre, I'm also hearing a significant bias to action, brother. Like you, you cannot tell this story unless you are leaning in and doing the work, right? Because you could talk about service. You could talk about impact. You could talk about transforming. And I know the, even correct me if I'm wrong, but subtitle of your book is turning poverty and prison into a purpose-driven life. Well, to me, purpose doesn't happen without action. Of course. It just doesn't. It doesn't. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're doing all this. I sense the action. I sense the partnership. 
So then the rest of the journey, like what leads to Academy of Hope or all of the other initiatives that you're involved with, like just catch us up on what you're up to now. Well, the first thing is the, the action is relative. See, people see what I do and they compare themselves to me. Oh man, Dre's actually in the prisons. He's in the community. He's doing suicide intervention talks to kids on the ledge. I want to do that. I would not be doing this if not for my mentors, if not for my guides. So if Rusty Keeley and John O'Leary and Dave Spence and Dan Curran and Keith Alper, I'm saying if John, John Rulin, if these guys don't show up for me, I can't show up for you. So being active doesn't mean physicality as far as going to the corner and talking to somebody in person. Your mentorship is huge. So the mentors I have in my life put the batteries in my back so I can keep going. So if John O'Leary doesn't give me a battery, I'm just a dead toy. So I don't need John to go into the juvenile center. I don't need Dave or Rusty to go into the juvenile center. I need them to get the battery to give to me and I go. Play, I mean, everybody has a lane in a row and some of them seem more sexy than others and they're like, everybody wants to do what seems to be sexy. And sometimes you got somebody has to do the dirty work. And sometimes the dirty work is staying off site, staying in the, in, in, out of the, away from the camera and inspiring the guy to go forward. So I, I dare to say to you, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, Serena Williams, um, John McEnroe, and anybody else had coaches. We don't know any of them. They all have personal coaches. We don't know any of them. But without those coaches, we don't get them. So the coaches are as important as the players. So we're playmakers. Sometimes our play is coaching role. Sometimes our play is coach. Sometimes our play is the actual player on the field. Sometimes you're the decoy. Sometimes you get the ball. But you got to run hard every single time. So what I'm doing now is I'm listening to my mentors. And I take the accountability. And they tell me no. If you don't have something in your life, they can tell you no. You don't have accountability. You don't have mentors. You just have a bunch of friends. I have mentors. John O'Leary can look me in my face and say, Andre, you can't do that. Dave Spence can look me in my face and say, you can't do that. I remember I had an opportunity once where a governor was going to make me the warden of a prison. I'm like, first time ever in the history of America has a gang leader become the warden of a prison. I went to my mentor's house and I told him all about it. And I was so excited. I'm going to be on Oprah, cover the New York Times, Newsweek, USA Today. I'm going to be famous. He's, he listened to me. When I finished, he said, Andre, you can't be the mentor. I said, yo, Ben, you don't get this. I'm about to be the warden. And he said, you can't be the warden, Dre. I said, yes, I am. You don't get it. They want to give me the job. I met with the governor. You're not hearing me. He says, I'm telling you, you can't do that. Once my excitement toned down, I said, Ben, why? He said, Andre, 95% of what a warden does, you want nothing to do with. There are meetings, 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 and more meetings. You want the 5% of actually engaging with inmates and engaging with families and training staff. That's 5% of a warden's job. The other 95% is sitting in meetings all day. And when you take that warden's job, you will be sitting in meetings 95% of the time and you will be miserable 100% of the time. If you take the 5% of what you do, turn it into a program and do that, it's scalable. You being a warden is not scalable. You're only at one facility at a time. Your program can be at 50 facilities. So he let me be excited. <laughs> he told me no. 
I listen, and I am not a warden, but I have a program in multiple states. So the Academy of Hope, which is a prison-based program, is because my mentor told me, don't shortchange myself and be a warden. Because you're going to go someplace and be miserable versus doing what you love to do. So I'm doing what my mentors told me to do. That was Ben Richter down in Houston, EOIPO guy. And I have so many mentors who can tell me no. And so every great idea I have, which is many, I take it back to them and I let them vet it. And I let them tell me through their experience, not emotional, if it's plausible or not. So I'm working in prisons. Um, the UN called me a few years ago about working with um, young kids joining um, our terrorist groups. I'm doing suicide prevention in Montana and Salt Lake City. I'm doing gang interventions in LA and New York. Um, I'm going to masterminds all over the country, being helpful with their audiences. And I'm just helping. When I come to a mastermind, it's not to teach you how to make more money. My first question is, how is your kids doing? How is your wife or husband doing? How is your community doing? Because I trust that the people who are there have all the other stuff down. So I am the engagement specialist and I help people reconnect to their kids. Well, cause that's the impact, right? Like they say, like, I know you do a ton of leadership development work and I always say the reason that you work with leaders is because you want to send them home in the healthiest possible state because healthy work equals healthy home equals healthy world. Like it scales exponentially well when we treat people well in this bubble that we could call it work. I call it a big plot of land that you're going to you're going to do something for over 100,000 hours of your life. So why wouldn't you make it count? Why wouldn't you find some meaning and purpose in that? Going back and for our audience listening to some of the names that you were uh, sharing there. So John O'Leary recently came out on Playmakers and I, I know and love many of the other names that you said. But what if I'm listening into this and if I was to say and, and here's where we're going with it, Andre, is a lot of those folks you would call your personal board of directors. So for all Playmakers listening in, find you a personal board of directors. But now let's assume you don't have one. What if there's somebody listening in, maybe they don't even have a single mentor. At one point, you probably didn't have a mentor, Andre. So what are those early steps on how do you go about finding a mentor? James Allen was my first mentor. James Allen wrote a book called As a Man Thinker. I read that book 50 times. And every time I read the book, I got new insights. Man's been dead for over 500 years, or whatever it's been. But he wrote a phenomenal book. And that book was my guidepost. Some people read the Bible. Some people read the Quran. They're written over thousands of years ago. They live by it. Their whole life is governed by a Bible or Quran or some kind of religious book. There are other books that are non-religious that are extremely impactful if you allow them to be. So in the space of personal wellness, for me, James Allen, as a man thinketh, was my go-to. Then I just started, I just stuck with that. I'm not scared. Bruce Lee. <laughs> we are, I, you and my era. Yeah. Bruce Lee was love the baddest it, man. man. I love before it. Mike Tyson. Before Mike Tyson, Bruce Lee was a man. And he says, I'm not scared of the guy who practiced a thousand kicks. I'm scared of the guy who practiced one kick a thousand times because he's mastered that thing. The book, As a Man Think It, I read that thing so many times. They're like, why do you keep reading the book, Dre? Because every time I, I go deep, I'm not trying to go wide. 
The tree that goes deep survives the storm. The tree that goes wide gives to the storm. And that book, I went so deep on. And it just, my thinking, I, you have to get the right book that fits you. And it could be the Bible, it could be Quran, it could be the five books of Moses, it could be whatever you want it to be. But go find that book and eliminate the author. Don't make it about the author, make it about the lessons. Let the lessons speak for you. So I always tell people, Andre, I don't even recommend my own book to people because my book is not a teaching book. It's a great inspirational book, but it's not the thing like as men think it's a fundamental tactical things that you can do and processes that you can follow to improve yourself. My story is just an inspirational story. So I don't even, when people ask me what should they read, I'll give them as men think if who not how by Den, Ben, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. Never split the difference by Chris Voss. I'm giving you books. Um, the Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham, the 90-minute book by Dean Jackson, fundamental tactical books that improve your systems. Now, if you want to be inspired, yeah, go get my book. But if you want to learn some tactical stuff, my book doesn't teach tactics. My book teaches you it's possible, that the impossible is possible. I tell people, I do the impossible for a living. And for the record, I've done it multiple times. So you can read my book and say, oh, the impossible is possible. Now you got to go do it. How? These other books give you the tactical, strategic things to go do the impossible. So good, man. For all playmakers out there, Andre, as we're turning the corner here, home stretch, before I ask one or two final questions, where can playmakers find you and follow you? At a Red Sox game. <laughs> oh, man. At <laughs> a Red Sox game. <laughs> where else would you find me? While the Celtics are still playing, the Patriots are in game. Yeah, you come to you come to a Boston sports game, you're subject to see. There you go. No, if you want to find me, two things. They can reach out to you and be like, hey, always say come to the people that you know. Come to the people that you know before you run to the people that you don't know. I'm the guy that you don't know. I sound good. I sound engaging. So you want to run up on me? No. Go to your source because you know your people. And you can help frame how they come to me if they come to me. It might be a better resource to me depending on what they need. I'm not in a search for followers or likes or anything else. I want people to get to the best person humanly possible for them. So my first thing is go to you and let you help them decide as their lead, guide, mentor. Yes, Andre's good for you. No, he's not. Yes, this is a better person for you. No, he's not. And that's what that is. So go to you first. And if they want to go from there, my website is my name, AndreNorman.com. But when they come to me and say, hey, I saw you on Playmakers. I'm like, did you talk to my man? Like, well, no. I'm like, well, why are you talking to me? <laughs> because if you're going to run around him and run to me, then you're going to run around me to the next person. You know I'm saying show some integrity. All right. I'm going to give you a, a, a big question, but I think you can help significantly here. So we're talking to all Playmakers and subtitle on purpose. Andre, the big question that we're trying to tackle here is, are you living your life on purpose or is life just happening to you? And where I really try to rally our entire community is saying purpose does not have to be a North Star. It can be a 365 way of life. So for one, would love to get your take on this theme and topic of purpose. And again, if there is somebody that says, I hear you and I feel you, but 
I ain't feeling a lot of purpose in my life. So would love to just hear, let, let's hang out for a couple of minutes in this purpose space. Okay, purpose. Everything I do, first question, am I living my life on purpose? 100%, 100%. Everything I do is on purpose. When I go to a meeting, what is my purpose for this meeting? What do I hope to get out of this meeting? What do I hope to give to this meeting? When I go to an event, what do I hope to get out of this event? I mean, everything is on, nothing's accidental. Prison taught me nothing's accidental. <laughs> you take nothing for granted. Everything has to be purposeful and make sense. So the way I answer that, and I say to people, is yes, my life is on purpose. Every conversation, every move, everything I attend, everything I don't attend is on purpose. And I say, well, how do you get that clarity, Dre? I'm going to die one day. And when I die, there's going to be a tombstone put above me. My tombstone is going to say three things. I've known this because I've done some research. I've been at a few funerals. <laughs> and I got tired of seeing beloved father, beloved son, man, the basics. I mean, it's like I don't spend eternity with some, some generic stuff on my head. So I said, well, what's going to go on my tombstone? Mine said it's going to say Harvard Fellow because I've done that. Mine's going to say honorable son, because I've done some remarkable things for my parents other than saying gifts on Father's Day and Mother's Day. Mine's going to say impacted mass incarceration. So my life is aligned with my purpose, which is aligned on my tombstone. If you can't line it up on your tombstone and it's, it's just some, something you picked up along the way. So everything that I'm doing lines up with my tombstone. And if it doesn't line up with the stone, then I say, what are you saying? It doesn't line up with my stone. Because when it's all said and done, that stone is going to say who you were. And the people who put the, the, the generic stuff on there probably had a generic life. So what's going on your stone? What's going on your stone? What's going on your stone? My question. my question to the playmakers is, what's going on your stone? And are you living in a way purposeful that's going to make that happen? And what you're saying, Andre, is I think we live in a world and a society that's so focused on what we're doing but a lot of what's going on your stone, the way that you just described it to us is, who are you being? Who do you want to become? And what's the price you're willing to pay to get there? Like that's literally, brother, that's how I interpreted your answer about purpose was all about intention. On purpose is straight up intention. Are you entering the day with intention because you have awareness and do you have a sense of ownership? Like, do you own your life? I got two things that I can say. I'm a Harvard fellow. I did that. Honorable son, I did that. Mass incarceration, I'm doing that. Then when I finish that one, I get to the next thing. But I want 20 things in my stone, but one at a time. I'm clear, my life, anybody points at anything I do, it lines up with my stone. And incarceration, I said, isn't just people in a physical prison. I want people who are dealing with drug addiction, people who are dealing with suicide and depression, people who are dealing with like just bad relationships and bad work. We want to free everybody. We want everybody to be free. Andre, my man, you are an absolute blessing, a treasure on behalf of all playmakers. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being you. They need to, this is what I tell you. Your people need to subscribe and follow Double Down. If they rock with you, then I rock with them. 
I love it. I love it. All right. Game on, my man. All right. We will. Uh, we know where to find you, follow you, get the book on Amazon. You got your website. And it, hey, you want a path to Andre? <laughs> Hit me up. Let's connect. And then, of course, we'll make it happen from there. So, Andre, thank you. And we'll see you soon. All right. Sounds like a plan. Peace, brother. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310 310- Five six four seven eight five seven. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.